Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here today. I hope you enjoy your um, seminars today. There's only two. Um, I have wondered at times if we couldn't have a little more time to develop some of that, um, but probably is the best we can do with the time that we have. We heard a wonderful message last night from David Atrick, didn't we? Yeah. A powerful message uh, with conviction. One of the things that I appreciate about David is that he hasn't stopped uh, reading. He doesn't have the uh, formal education that uh, probably would be good for somebody with this bright mind to have, but he doesn't stop reading, and that uh, helps make up for some of that. And uh, it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good message that I hope we all take it to heart for 2010, not to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that that was the main theme of Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a, a love affair with the cross. That was his thing, with the cross of Christ. And that is what God used to begin the Reformation, to really start the Reformation and break loose from uh, over, you know, 1,500, from over a thousand years of darkness. Um, and that will be, again, the way that God is going to do that. We're talking about the greatest thing in the world, about the nature of love and the miracle of change. And I want us to uh, read a few verses again before we pray from 1 Corinthians 13. Again, I want to remind you, Ellen White suggests that we read this chapter every single day. We'll read a few verses today. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and is not arrogant. This is in the NASB. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Father in heaven, this year, 2010, we want to know about that love. We want to live that love. We want to experience that love. We want to give that love away for the sake of others. This year, we want to pledge ourselves to be totally yours, to surrender all to you, even those little things that we thought were inconsequential, or worse yet, things that we fear really keep us away from God, even though it's only one or two of them. We want to surrender all to you so that you can love other people through us and so that we may experience the full range of your own love to us. For we realize, Lord, that if we know your love, it will be nigh impossible for us not to follow you, not to be totally devoted to you, because the love of God the love of God is the greatest thing in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The subject is the greatest power in the world, the nature of faith, and we're going to talk about faith today. But you may have some questions from yesterday, uh, various subjects we've had. And uh, let's begin with that. Is anyone, does anyone have a question? I know that some questions will be generated as, as we talk about some of these subjects again, and that tends to happen. But if there are any now, let's, uh, let's deal with some of those. Anybody? Last night, the, is this a case that the last night, you know, being the end of last year, kind of erased everything from your memory? <laughs> Start anew? <laughs> That's fine. The, either this means that uh, things are fairly clear, or that the questions are so uh, enormous, they say, oh, it's not even bother. <laughs> it's just, it probably will take too much to process. All right, if you do have questions uh, at any time, just raise your hand. Uh, you can shout after you raise your hand and I acknowledge it, okay? But don't do that before that, all right? Yes? talking about the different types of salvation. We were talking about the different types of yesterday. salvation. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the way, the way in which, uh, in which uh, theological schools in understand different ty types of salvation. And the way I was taught in baptismal class in the Adventist Church was definitely Arminianist uh, when I was uh, a young child. And the later on, I discovered the, the Grace at Work model mm -hmm. that uh, you shared um, yesterday. My question is, do you see uh, a big shift in the Adventist Church from Arminianism to uh, salvation by God's work? All right. Uh, so he's saying that uh, when he came into the church, he was taught a basically Arminian model in that later he learned a, a grace at work model. Um, has the Adventist church shifted from being more Arminian and being a little bit more grace at work orientation? I think that that depends on where you are in the world. And uh, let's speak about America, which is our context. Um, I think you could make an argument for the fact that uh, we have moved a little bit more towards an emphasis on grace-centered salvation uh, from, particularly from the 40s and 50s and perhaps 60s, over the last couple decades, we have shifted a little bit more towards that. Now, I say that, you know, with some qualification because it depends who you speak with. And there are some people who um, have shifted so much, they, they have become basically Calvinists in the process. Um, and, uh, and others have not shifted at all. And so a great deal of that has to do with a personal walk and development. Uh, in general, if I were to give an opinion, I would say that yes, we have, because we have paid more attention to, to New Testament teaching on, on salvation. And so we've, I think we've learned a little bit more the nuances of that. Um, having said that, having said that, um, let me add that people do not need to do a lot of systematic theology in order to try to understand how a person is saved. It really comes by, by studying your Bible, reading your Bible, praying, and relating to God. The more you surrender to the Lord Jesus, the more intuitively you may understand some of these principles. Now that doesn't happen, and it would be dangerous to simply pray and surrender to God and not read the Scripture. Because the scripture is the one that gives you the framework for what God says and what he teaches. Uh, but if you, if you live a surrendered life that is growing in Christ, you understand, you don't, you, you're not mixed up about how you're saved. It, 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 you know that, God, that you're saved because God loves you to pieces. He just loves you so, and that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, and yet at the same time, you recognize it, is, it, it just makes absolute sense for you as a response of in, in thankfulness, uh, a, a response to that great love, to surrender to Him and to, and to follow Him and to love Him and to obey Him. It just doesn't, there is no dichotomy for the committed Christian regarding faith and works. Yes, there was another question back there, a comment? Didn't have the benefit of the presentation. I'm going to just repeat it. Uh. But um, since Scripture is not cultural, uh, since all around the world we're saved the same way. Since we're saved the same way and the Scripture is not cultural. What, uh, what is the simplicity of salvation by faith? What's the simplicity of salvation by faith? Um, here it is. Let's sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. 
Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. You know, if we, if we were to be asked by Jesus as we enter into the pearly gates, why are you being saved? The only answer we can give is because you decided to save me. Because you loved me so. And that's the end of the story. Yes. Yes. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay, the question is, uh, based on the four-fold um, table that we talked about yesterday, what, you know, seeking to understand a little bit better what is salvation um, by human response. That's my wording having to do with Arminianism. In other words, um, Calvinism says salvation is without works. Uh, in other words, anything that has to do with words is a bad word for, for a Calvinist, uh, a, you know, a true Calvinist. Um, Armenian, uh, Arminius came along and said, wait a minute, that can't be the whole story. And he says, no, it's very important. Salvation is not really achieved until you respond. But the, the corrective by Arminius became an emphasis. Follow my words carefully here. The corrective became an emphasis and not a balance. And so it, 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 what happens is that when you have too much emphasis, it really has to do with justification and sanctification. If you have too much emphasis on justification, which is the Calvinist tendency, and not enough emphasis on sanctification, then you have a, a crooked gospel, you, you, you know, uh, you, can, you can be led to cheap, to cheap grace. If you have an overemphasis on sanctification, that is human response, in, in a, you minimize justification, then salvation becomes more anthropocentric, that is man-centered, than it needs to be. Now salvation is not, has nothing to do with man, but the Bible clearly says that we're saved by grace through faith. And that is something God has given us, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, uh, but it is simply a response to the goodness of God in, in the plan of God. Uh, it's simply uh, not resisting that, in other words. All right? And so salvation by human response is just a little bit of an overemphasis on our role to respond to God. That probably is, uh, takes away from the brilliance and the, and the centrality of the gospel itself, which is God and God alone who has done this. A, a lot of this is nuances. If you really think about Christian denominations, the whole spectrum of 3,000 denominations have one way or another, various emphasis on these, on, on these two concepts of salvation, justification and sanctification. And it, you know, it's, it's all a variation of that theme. And I'm saying that it, it, very simply, um, uh, you know, it's a little more complex than that, but anyway. All right, let's talk about the nature of faith. Let, let's remind ourselves about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, that no one should boast. And so the Bible makes it clear. This text is as clear as it could possibly be. By grace, you're saved. By grace. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by grace. But it is through faith. And so the medium, the, the, the way in which you appropriate grace is through faith. Hmm? It is through faith. It's not imposed on you. This grace is not imposed on us. It is offered to us freely, waiting for us to say yes to it. 
in saying yes to it, it is an exercise of faith. Hmm? So we're going to try to answer four or five basic questions um, this morning. What is faith? What is the nature of faith to, to begin with? And I, I could go at some depth, but uh, we're going to keep it fairly simple. I hope you don't get too bored about that. Hebrews 11 verse 1. It has, I believe, the best biblical definition of faith. And that simply means faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice the words used there. What does that word conviction mean? When you're con under conviction, what does that mean? Hmm? You, you, you're what? You're not questioning. You're not questioning. You're, you're sure, right? A, a conviction of things not seen. Uh, assurance, that's basically the same concept, right? In other words, it's knowing that a certain thing is so, although through your senses you cannot perceive it. Hmm? It's talking about one of those senses, uh, sense of sight. Uh, but it's even though your senses cannot perceive it. This is a very important point because that means that faith is living in another dimension. Let me just put it that way. Christians are the only people that really live in another dimension. Everyone else, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Jewish people, Muslims people, secular people, pagan people, you know, Satanists, everyone else lives by sense by senses, by what they perceive their reality to be. They explain it that way, they work it out that way, they respond to it that way. That's why so many people, you know, when 9-11, you know, took place, uh, nine years ago now, almost, you know, eight plus years ago now, uh, you remember where you were when you first heard about 9-11? I bet you do. You know, some, some people that are a little older have the same experience in, for 1963. What happened in 1963? JFK. JFK was killed. And everyone who was alive at that time remembers when they heard that, no, that, that news. It's like it was so shocking. Um, I was in a different country at that time, so I was not, uh, you know. But I remember when Reagan was shot in 1981. Boom! You know, I remember where I was. I was giving somebody a ride. He was a hitchhiker. And he got in my car and he says, Hey, have you heard about Reagan? <laughs> I said, No. He got shot, you know. Well, anyway, uh, in 9-11, right after 9-11, what happened? People flocked to Adventist meetings. Why? Because people live by sense. It's like, oh, something is happening. I can feel it. I got to have some answers to that. Hmm? That's normal human reaction. But the Christian, the Christian lives by faith. The word faith is the Greek pistis. Pistis is not intellectual assent. This is important to understand. Because in English, sometimes we misunderstand the concept of faith by using that word belief. We use the word belief when we say, you know, I believe certain things are so, but then we don't act on them, right? And so what really, we, that's why we have a couple of words. And one is belief, which is more the intellectual sense, at least that, that's how we use it. And the other one is trust. And trust means, you know, I'm really doing that. Uh, I remember illustrating that with my three-year-old daughter at that time. She's 19 now, and I probably wouldn't do it. I had her stand in a place like this, a little higher, about this high. And I said, Stephanie, throw yourself back. Just uh, put your arms out and throw yourself back. And she didn't hesitate, not one second. She didn't look back. She says, Daddy, are you sure you're going to pick me up? She, she, she didn't check whether I was too far, whether, whether physically speaking, you know, I, you know I, I, I could make it. She had total trust on her dad. You know, that continued until she was about 12, and then things began to change. 
uh, she used to, yeah, she, when I came home, she used to catch me. Uh, parents, you'll, you'll get a chuckle out of this, you'll relate to this. Uh, she used to catch me, she, was, she would hide when she saw me come up the drive, and she would hide in the kitchen somewhere or under, you know, and then as soon as I'd open the door, she would say, Daddy, catch me. I mean, she would catch, you know, I didn't know where she was coming from. And so it was, you know, either this way or that way or that way or behind me. And so the whole, she gave me about 0.5 seconds. And then all of a sudden I would see this girl up in the air. <laughs> and I would catch her. That's trust. That's called trust. That's confidence in the object of your trust. That's what the Bible means by faith. That's why the Bible says that when, you know, that faith is the assurance of things not seen, the conviction. It's, it's going for it even though it cannot be seen. That word in, it, it implies an attitude of the mind and a pattern of conduct. So that's why it can be also translated as faithfulness. It's an attitude that says, this is really what I want to do. I'm choosing that. I'm choosing that. That's an intellectual aspect. But then I'm moving my feet towards it. That's your behavior that follows through with it. It is, it is important to understand that, biblically speaking, faith is nothing but trust. Real trust is that little three-year-old saying, you know, throwing herself back because daddy said do so. That's trust. In Hebrews 11, the two shades of meaning, attitude, and contact are closely interwoven throughout. Remember Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, right? By faith, Adam. By faith, Moses. By faith, um, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, and then, and then what they say is what they did. And what they did was not in order to ingratiate themselves to God. It's because God said, do this. Like Abraham, you know, I'm going to set you out. Start going. Start marching. I'm going to give you a new land. And God didn't say how and how long and how difficult and how far and where it is. God says, go. By faith, Abraham sought for a city. You know, and because he was looking, he says, because his trust in God was so that he knew that, you know, eventually he would get a city built without hands. In other words, you know, he, he was trusting God uh, regarding heaven. Therefore, he would trust God anything on earth. In each instance of faith cited, an attitude of faith led to faithful deeds. Faith is trusting God. The book of education, uh, this is a, a very good chapter, faith and prayer. And I wish I could talk about prayer. Uh, I love that subject. And uh, faith and prayer is a very good little chapter. It says, faith is trusting God, believing that He loves us and knows best what is for our good. Now this is, you see how the relationship between faith and love, love and faith. It is very difficult to trust anyone who don't, you don't love. <clears throat> it is commensurate. The more you, you love someone, the more you are bound to trust that person. The more you find out how much God loves you, the more you love Him back, therefore, the more you want to trust Him. And that's why it's so important to keep your Bible very close, because you won't know God by proxy. You will not go God, know God by simply pulling it out of the air. This is where God reveals Himself. Hmm? This is it. So faith is trusting God, believing that He loves us and knows best what is for our good. Thus, instead of our own, it leads us to choose His way. In place of our ignorance, it accepts His wisdom. In place of our weakness, His strength. This is a beautiful uh, paragraph. In, in place of our sinfulness, His righteousness. And this is an, a very important one. Why? Because this is, the, this is the crux. In place of our sinfulness, His righteousness. This is the one thing that Paul tried to teach that I believe was the hardest thing for people to buy. He would say, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Are we dead to sin? 
everything about my life, everything about my experience, every day I find there is sin in my life, I do things that are sinful, how could I reckon my life as debt to sin? That's a choice by faith, you see. It doesn't feel that way. And so you must choose to believe that you have said, I am dead to sin, even though you feel, you perceive, you sense you're very much alive to sin. Wow! You see, that is how far this faith thing needs to go. And the problem is that many times we do this. We say, okay, I will trust His wisdom in spite of my, instead of my ignorance. I will trust His strength and, instead of my weakness. But this business of trusting His righteousness instead of my sinfulness, I'm not sure I can do that. Well, as soon as we say that, then we're not trusting Him. Faith is not, oh, this is, um, what's his name, James Denny. Studies in theology, he, he put it uh, nicely. So he says, faith is not the acceptance of a legal arrangement. It is the abandonment of the soul, which has no hope but in the Savior, to the Savior. Is you abandon yourself completely to Him. You float out yourself out there and you say, you catch me. Now you don't do that and force Him to catch you. That's exactly what the temptation to Jesus was by Satan, remember? The second temptation, you say, you ah, go out there and He'll catch you. He says, wait a minute, He didn't tell me to go out there. That would be presumption. It is the abandonment of the soul which has no hope but in the Savior, to the Savior. It includes the absolute renunciation of everything else to lay hold on Christ. Faith is a passion in which the whole being, in the best sense of the word, in which the whole being of man is caught up and abandoned unconditionally to the love revealed in the Savior. Faith will grow the more you know Him. Faith, it's inevitable to grow the more you know Him. Early writing 72 has probably one of the best definitions of faith versus feeling, because that is the biggest thing. Human beings innately live by feeling. Analyze, think about, you know, watch uh, the news, uh, comments, people, you know, you know, analyze life and you will find that most decisions anyone ever makes is based on how they feel about it. And you know what? There is a language transition. I came to this country in 1975. It's been 35 years. And I have noticed how much more we use the word feeling today than we did then. Everybody, everybody feel, oh I don't feel like it, or I feel like it. You know, it feels like, and we use the word feeling as if it were a fact. Here it is, listen carefully, page 72, early writings. Many do not exercise that faith which is their privilege and duty to exercise, often waiting for that feeling which faith alone can bring. Feeling is not faith, the two are distinct. Huh? Can't be more clear. Faith is ours to exercise. But joyful feeling and the blessing, he's talking in the context of the baptism of the Spirit of God, by the way. You know, in, in, in which many people say, oh, you know, I just want to feel the power of God. All right? The blessing is, is, is Methodistic language. You know, she was raised as a Methodist. And the method is called the blessing, the baptism of the Spirit. Faith is ours to exercise, but joyful feeling and the blessing of the Spirit are God's to give. True faith lays hold of and claims the promised blessing before it is realized and felt. Wow! So you, before you feel close to God, before you feel loving to God, before you, you feel God is close to you or He's listening to you, you act on it. Be, before, because He said so. Period. And then she says, then the feeling might come. Here's faith, she says, naked faith, to believe that we receive the blessing, even before we realize it. When the promised blessing is realized and enjoyed, faith is swallowed up. 
It's, it's, it's finally complete there. But many suppose they have much faith when sharing largely of the Holy Spirit and that they cannot have faith unless they feel the power of the Spirit. Such confound faith with a blessing that comes through faith. Please. Do you think it's proper Question. to ask for an affirming feeling from God? Okay, very good question. Do you think it's proper to ask God to affirm your faith with feelings? At times it may be. Um, God will not be offended by that, but I would not make that a, a regular practice. There might be, there might be moments when our circumstances are so dire, so dark, and so despairing in a sense that we say, God, I'm going to trust you on this, but I really feel like I'm going out on a total limb. I don't know really what's going on. Please give me a token that, that this is going in the right direction, you know. But don't get too used to that. Don't get too used to that. Yes. Is that the same as looking for a sign? Yeah, that's similar to that. Yeah, because basically, uh, you know, you've heard the expression or read, you know, people, oh, I, uh, I knew it was God because I, feel, I felt warmth all over or something like that, you know. That's, um, that may be so, um, but that's another sign. That's a sign. In other words, anything we can perceive is a sign. A miracle is a sign because we can see it, you see. We can see what happened. We can see the result. But we are taught in the Bible that we don't live by miracles. And, uh, and uh, when we demand miracles such as, you know, Herod, he demanded miracles of Jesus. He, did, he didn't do it. You know, miracles are, are something to clarify something or to reinforce something, but not in order to engender faith. Miracles are not designed by God to produce faith. Hmm? It's, uh, there are other objectives God has by the use of miracles that most of the time have fairly little to do with you. It has more to do with the great controversy, with, with other issues, with onlooking, people onlooking, so forth. Yes? In the initial stages of the Christian experience, uh, can it strengthens faith. Yeah, very good, very good comment. Yes. Yes, God, that's what God does. He parcels that out. The, the younger we are in Him, the more we need signs, if you will. The more we need more tangible evidences. The more mature we are in Him, the more He'll keep us drying out there, out there. Why? Because He says, you know better. In other words, you don't need, you don't need to perceive this sensorily. You, you need to remember what you already read in Scripture about it. But the young Christian may not know much about what the Scripture says on that, you see. So, it, it, that's the equivalent of that. It's, um, let, me, let me give you an illustration. I'm not sure if it's going to work, you know. I'm thinking of these things as I speak, and so that's always sometimes risky. Um, uh, take a funeral. Um, when an 18-year-old dies, the funeral service is filled with, often with younger people, and many of them are just crying their brains out. Why? They're not used to seeing death. It is so shocking. It is so unlike this thing. Look at the 60-year-olds, look at the 70-year-olds, look at the 50-year-olds. They're a lot more in touch, first, with their mortality, and secondly, they have seen a number of people die around them already. They're not despairing as easily. See, and so it's an issue of maturity and closeness to that. Uh, God gives us more of a concrete thing to those of us who are younger in Him, uh, whereas those of us who have had more of a walk with Him, He says, um, you, you can go deeper without needing a, a, a um, you know, a, a big th th sign in the sky about that. You know that I'm there. Yeah, okay. This is generating questions. You guys are not going to let me finish. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, go ahead.
Oh, you're saying, uh, you're comparing the 12 disciples with Mary Magdalene. You th you're saying that because uh, Jesus did not perform miracles with Mary Magdalene? Is that? Yeah, and so did the disciples. Okay, okay. Do you think if he didn't perform those miracles, like making the blind see, healing the sick, casting out demons, do you think it would have been a lot harder and longer for the disciples to believe in him? Um, remember, uh, Jesus did some of that for the sake of his disciples, but mostly not for the sake of his disciples. The miracles that Jesus uh, performed was mostly for the sake of the Jewish people and for the sake of the, of the object of his blessing. For instance, Bartimaeus. Uh, you, you notice that a lot of uh, miracles in, uh, in the Gospels are tied with faith. In other words, these are people, a lot of healing miracles. Uh, let it be done according to your faith. Great is your faith or that was done because of your faith. In other words, what Jesus is doing, he's given a tangible. You gotta understand that these people are coming out of great darkness. They haven't had a prophet for 425 years. They, they have gone away from God. Paganism was entering into, into, the, into the Judaism. They had absolutely wrong concepts about God. And so God is trying to restore that sort of in a, uh, a jumpstart thing, so. I was just gonna say the best way to see the evidence of God in your life is working for others. Because if you say, Lord, uh, bless this person, you show me what to do. A lot of times he'll send you to somebody's house, or da, da, da. you'll see his hand working. That's, that's trust, yeah, that's trust, and that's true. All right, when will faith become obsolete? Yeah, I think that's a pretty, uh, you know, kind of a duh question. Um, do you think that angels have faith? Do they live by faith? Will we, when we go to heaven, live by faith after sin and sinners are done away with? You know, after the thousand... Yes, absolutely. I think that faith is simply a, 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 the means of a relationship with God. It's simply, it's very simple. Remember what Jesus said to the early couple, to the Edenic couple, Adam and Eve. Uh, he began when he says, And God said to them, you know, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. And then in chapter 2 he says, you know, all the trees, but this tree. Right? Three commands. What did he expect of them? They expect, he expected them to obey him. Based on what? His word. Based on their faith, based on their trust in him. So from the very beginning, it was a de facto thing. Faith has always been there. And when faith is broken, remember what happened to, e, to Adam? He hid, right? He hid from God. And when he hid from God, God said to him, Who told you? In other words, faith is based on what you hear God say. It's what God says. And now if your new reality is that you're naked and that you need to hide from God, it's because somebody else told you something else. And you decided to trust it. Sure enough. Eve trusted in the words of the serpent over the words of God. And so that's, you know, that's, that's going to always remain the same. And God has ensured that each of us has a measure of faith. That, that's what uh, Romans 12 says. Everyone has a measure of faith. Now sometimes people will say, well, you know what? How much faith? We, we usually think in terms of quantity. And remember the answer Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, right? Did he mean small faith? Was he talking about quantity there? No. He was talking about quality there. In other words, if a, a seed that is a healthy seed will produce what it's supposed to produce. Bury it and it will happen. Hmm? Whether it is a small or big. The, the issue is it needs to be buried. The issue it needs to be used. It needs to be uh, exercised. So faith is an issue of quality, not quantity. 
Some people say, oh, I don't have as much faith as brother such and such, or sister such and such. Oh, those people just pray, and they, you know, things happen in their lives. Oh, they have faith. You know, sometimes I chuckle because churches ask pastors to pray over potluck, as if the prayer of the pastors, you know, gets there a little bit faster. For potluck, goodness sake, you know, it's, um, it, 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 that's immaterial. It's whether you're going to exercise that or not. Because everyone has faith. But the faith is like a muscle. Remember I told you that yesterday. It's a spiritual muscle. That is the single spiritual muscle God has given us. And so if you want to look like Atlas, you better exercise it. Otherwise you're going to be a puny little Christian that's going to be tossed to and fro, good analogy, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine all the time because you cannot, you cannot resist it. You, you do not know how to hang on to God. Luke 18 verse 8 says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus expects this is going to be the bottom line. People will have to have faith. By the time I come, they need to know, they need to trust me. The people that I'm going to take home are people who are trusting people. You know, this comes at the heels of that good parable of the, of the woman who came to the judge and said, you know, give me protection for my enemies and so forth. I, I could. Anyway, why is faith so important? So here's, a, here's another very important question. Why is faith so important? Let's look at several texts. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. To please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now this has a paternal, a kind of a paternal figure to that. It's like a child coming to his father or her father asking for something, expecting the father to respond. We must come to God expecting us to expecting him to reward those who seek him. In other words, expecting that he would respond when we seek after him, when we, when we go to him, right? And what that does is that it pleases God. You want to really please God? Trust him. You want to make his day? Trust him. Some of you may remember this. I remember Mark. Mark uh, Finley gave a sermon in GYC a few years ago, I can't remember where it was. Now, it was somewhere. Yeah, about four or five years ago. I remember that. It was a Friday night. And I thought, what a good sermon. And the whole sermon was premised on the fact that God sees a lot of misery every day. A lot of sin, a lot of misery, a lot of people asking for help for this or that. It, you know, there's a lot of reason to be down. And then he challenged us and said, why don't you make him happy? Why don't you really trust him? I mean, this is what makes him happy, to trust in him. Why don't you make his day? I mean, he, I'm using my words, not, not his at this point, but that was the tenor of it. And if you want to make God's day, trust him. Uh, that's the same thing for any parent here. When you had children, when, you know, when your child actually trusted your word in spite of how they felt, because most children don't do that, right? They want to get their will, you know, because they feel this way or that way, right? They want to fight with their parents. But if a child actually says, okay, Dad, I'll do that because you say that. Man, that makes you weak. Why? Not because you got your way over your offspring. It's because they just made a very important step in life. This is really growing. Not to please self, but to think, uh, you know, to, to, to yield to someone because you trust that someone. That is such, a, such an important lesson. So without faith, it is impossible to be, please Him. You please God, trust Him. Conclusion, the only way to please God is to trust Him. Alright, here's another one. And this is the, the theme for the entire weekend. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who what? Who believes. And that believes is trust. Remember, that's what the Bible conceives as beliefs. 
trust, not just intellectual assent. Everyone, it is the power of God for those who believe, those who don't believe, those who keep it at arm's length, even if there are Christians, but they don't trust God, then the gospel is no power. But if you trust, it is a power of God. And then it says, for the gospel, in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, that gospel will grow you. There's a growth process from faith to faith, like from step to step. Boom, boom, boom. You keep growing from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. It is impossible to live unless you trust. That's the bottom line there. Um, let's look at Ephesians 3. For this reason, Paul said, I bow my knees before the Father, and then he starts praying for the Ephesians. And then he says in verse 16 17, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, as the Holy Spirit living in our lives, so that Christ the Holy Spirit brings Christ in your life, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Through faith. So, even though the Holy Spirit brings Christ in your life, it's not something you may sense. Now, charismatic theology says you got to sense that. Charismatic theology encourages people to seek for that until you feel something happen. And what happens is that our minds are so constructed that if you really look for something and expect to see it, eventually you're going to do that. And so people who never even imagined they would speak in tongues, they end up speaking in tongues because they expect it and they've been after that for 10 years until they finally do it. Why? Because the expectation is to feel something. But that's not what the Bible says. We have the Spirit of God in our hearts, which is Christ, in our hearts, through faith. Not because, oh yes, something happened to me at exactly this time or that time. No, it's because God said so. I invited Him into my heart. I believe He is there. Period. Period. Through faith. Through faith. Remember, it goes back to the very basic premise. Christians are the only people in the world that live by faith. Not by sight. And that's why Paul was able to say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. What do you mean, Paul? You're not the one living. Obviously, you're the one living. No, he says, I'm not. I'm not the one who lives. Christ lives in me, he says. How do you know, Paul? The life which I now live in the flesh. In other words, he recognizes there are some issues there. He lives that life in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how I live. I know God is there. I believe He is there. I believe He's God in my life. I live by faith. In other words, I trust what He says. What He says, that's what I do. I live that life by faith who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that is really the centering point of faith. As long as you keep your eyes on the love of God, on his sacrifice for you, he's given himself up for you, that trust will continue to be regenerated. It'll, it'll stimulate your willingness to trust God. So, a conclusion life without faith is as if being dead. And that's really what it is. You know, we say, we say, oh, that church is dead. Or we say that, oh, the Adventist church is dead. Biblically speaking, what we mean to say is, we're living faithless lives. We do not, we're not exercising trust in God. We're exercising more trust in ourselves, in how we see things, than in what God says. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, the gift of God. We read this, not as a result of work that no one should boast. So by grace through faith. Romans 6, that's how salvation is, by grace through faith, okay? Justification is achieved. You know what justification is? Justification is imputed righteousness. 
Those are the words of Ellen White. Imputed righteousness. In other words, you stand. It's like Romans 5 says, you stand. You have a standing now with God. Whereas before you didn't. You, 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 you're okay with God now. Whereas before you, you weren't. You have a stand. That's justification. You're justified. As if God was in your place. You are standing now. That's justification. Well, by grace through faith. But that's not all. And that's why it's important to keep in mind the second arm of salvation, which is called, technically speaking, sanctification. The word sanctification is from the Hebrew sanctus, which means, not Hebrew, Latin sanctus, which means holy. And I almost wish somebody would have, you know, years ago, I'm not going to change that now, uh, simply Englishize the word and say holification. That's really what it means. Holification. Sanctification is growth in Him. Remember yesterday we talked about being born? Being born is justification. Growing is sanctification. And it is a freak of nature, physical nature, when you find a, a baby that is born but doesn't grow. Spiritually speaking, it's the same. You cannot just be born and not grow. You must grow. And you cannot grow until you're born. Right? So, all of that is by faith. All of that is by faith. By faith you believe what God says that He has died for you and that you have a standing with Him. And by faith, every single day what He says is, Okay, Lord, whatever you say, okay, you showed me this. No, I see that. Okay, I'll move forward with that then. I choose to move forward. Even if you're not able to move forward. You see the difference? You may not be able to move forward, but you're going to move forward nevertheless. You choose to move forward. It's a decision of the mind. And when you decide something based on what God says, then God moves you forward. Amen. Why? Because it's not your idea. It's His. So, that's why Romans 6, 6 and 11 is so critical. This is a very important text here. This, I believe, is where most Christians in, in Adventists are in that group. Do not process this very well. They do not understand this. They, they can't, you know, most of us have just a built-in resistance to understand this. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Talked about sin the first uh, session, remember? And Jesus called that slavery. Even so, alright, that old man. Even so, consider yourselves. The old English was reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Wow! Now I want you to really chew on that. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. It doesn't say acknowledge that you are dead to sin. It doesn't say, realize that you are dead to sin. It says, consider it. Reckon upon it. In other words, count on the fact that you're dead to sin, even though you may not be. Does that sound like heresy? That's really what it means. Count on it. Don't pay attention to the fact that you sinned just 15 minutes ago. Or the fact that, that you sinned yesterday. Count on the fact that you have given your life up. And that He has saved you. He has, he has done this for you. Count on that. And say, that's the way it is. I count on that. I, I, I reckon to be dead to sin. Even though it doesn't feel that way. And I'm going to be alive in Christ. I mean, that really takes some decision making. Yes. What strikes me is this is right back to what you said initially. This is the attitude. That's right. That we have in our hearts. We have decided in our hearts that sin is ugly. Amen. But sometimes the performance isn't there, but we still Amen. 
Amen. It, we ha it has to do with attitude. It has to do with what we decide. That is why God, you see Ellen White says somewhere, I don't have the, the reference, uh, somewhere that the avenues that the devil uses are appetite, emotions, some of you probably know this better, emotions, feelings, passions. And that the avenues God uses are the intellect and the mind. That's how he works. He will not, he will not try to communicate to you through, you, through your stomach. The devil does that. Why? Because he whole, his whole premise is based on how he can make you feel. But God's whole premise is what he promises. What he says he does. What he says he will do. Even though it may not be so readily apparent right now. Consider yourself, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Say that. Ellen White says in, in other places, you got to talk faith until you have faith. In other words, it doesn't feel this way. You just blew it a few minutes ago. Come right back to it and say, no, I know this is not what God designed. I know this is not what God desires for my life. This is what God, and I will trust in Him even though I'm really messed up. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on what God promises. And that is your way out of. That's why in 1 John 5 we're told that faith is our victory. That is your way out of the miasma of human, of sinfulness. To trust what God says. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. I got to close here. Faith then is the means for justification and sanctification. Faith is the means. It is the, the medium in the best sense of the word for that. That's why it is so absolutely vital to live by faith. You cannot live by anything else. If you try to live anything outside of faith, you're not living. You're dead. You're dying. It is not life. And that's exactly what happens with the Hindu and the Muslim and the, and the Buddhist. All of those people are absolutely depressed. And so are many Christians. Because they don't live by faith. They don't trust God. They're simply, they're trusting their circumstances. Oh, it's so easy to do that. Ephesians 6.16, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, Paul says, with which you will be able to distinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So faith is also to defend ourselves, right? That's the one weapon that is the defensive weapon in, in the armor of God, Ephesians 6. 1 John 5.4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Just a minute. Um, faith then is our shield against Satan in our victory over the world. Faith, it's, it's so vital, it's so necessary. God has given, God, and you don't have to generate faith. God has given that to you already. You just have to use it. You just have to put it on, just to use it. Just use it. So why is faith so important to summarize? Without it, we cannot please God. Without it, we cannot do, we cannot, nor do we really live. We're dead. We really are dead without uh, exercising faith. Without it, we cannot be saved, nor can we grow in, in grace, justification, sanctification. Without it, we're easy prey for the devil. Without it, we cannot overcome the world. Boy. God has given us a great gift in exercising faith. Trust in Him. How do you exercise faith? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Word of Christ. Hasn't that happened to you? Sometimes you read something in your devotionals in the morning or in the evening, and you read something that just leaps out of the page. To you, speaks to you, and you say, Wow, God! I, it, it, and it's just something that reveals to you something about God. In, in, in that day, you, 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 you want to trust Him more. You, 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 tr you, you go out of that place better. You look at other circumstances, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm not, I'm not depressed over this. Uh, I have a chemistry test, and I'll probably blow it. But 
it's all right. It really is all right because I have learned this morning that God really loves me. Wow. If you don't do that, what happens? If faith is not engaged, you look at the chemistry test and say, ah, you know, you respond to your circumstances. Huh? So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's why it is so vitally important to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to meditate on the Bible, to really let the words of Christ bathe over your mind. You know, a few years, a number of years ago, I got, I, I wanted to listen to the Bible based on this text. I said, hearing, I want to hear the Bible. Just, not, not just read it and study and underline it and dissect it. I want to hear it. And so I got myself tapes, you know, and then I got CDs later. And I listened to about 12, 13 chapters every single day. And by that I would cover the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in three months. And then I would start over again. So every year I would listen to the Bible four times. The entire Bible. And I found it was just tremendous. It just naturally increased my faith. I mean, if you want to listen to 12, 13 chapters a day, which is basically the... I mean, I didn't have a lot of time to stop and to really analyze. You know, sometimes I would do that. And so it would just go right by, you know. And yet just listening to it, just listening to that, did something for me. How to exercise faith should be made very plain. Ellen White says, to every promise of God there are conditions. If we're willing to do His will, this is Education 253, all His strength is ours. Whatever gift He promises is in the promise itself. The seed is the Word of God. The seed of faith is the Word of God. As surely as the oak is in the acorn, so surely is the gift of God in His promise. I love that analogy because it's easy to visualize and easy to remember. If we remember the promise, we have the gift. So here it is. Look at that beautiful oak tree. The oak tree is already here. The oak tree is in the acorn. The acorn is the promise of God. So hold on to it, you already have the tree. Doesn't look like a tree, doesn't feel like a tree, doesn't weigh like a tree, it doesn't appear like a tree. You have the tree. You have the tree because you have the promise. Manuscript 1, 1889, this is in uh, Bible Commentary, Volume 5 also, page 1121. You have to talk faith, she's telling someone. You have to live faith. You have to act faith that you may have an increase of faith. In thus exercising that living faith, you will grow to strong men and women in Christ. You have to exercise it. Just move, move forward with it. The whole Hebrews 11 story is about men and women who exercise faith in spite of very dire circumstances. Very difficult circumstances. So finally, Paul concludes that chapter by what he says in the next. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is beset before us. Paul, said, Paul doesn't, doesn't minimize the fact that we got sin in our lives or that we got problems in our life. He doesn't say, you know, work hard at letting that go. He says, move forward. How? The race that is set before us, how? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter. Here's the, the author of justification, perfecter of sanctification. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look up and live, Isaiah said. Look up and live. Look up and just resist everything. You know, it says, everything is crying out here to look down, look at the misery. Don't be a horizontal Christian. Be a vertical Christian. Look up, look up, look up. Just be stubborn to not look at your circumstances, regardless of how, you know, the devil is going to go at you and at you and at you, and you're going to find one fail, at failure after another, and God keeps saying, keep looking at me. 
And once we finally get used to that, then we'll find that our tendency to look sideways is greatly reduced. And we say, wow, God is really changing me. And He's changing me because He's keeping my eyes on Him. I'm keeping my eyes on Him. I want to trust Him. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Father in heaven, oh Lord Jesus, this is our daily struggle. That we would know you, that we would surrender to you, that we would trust you with all our hearts. That we would reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. That is our desire too. What you taught us today through your word is our desire today. And we agree with you, Lord. And we say to you today, we choose to trust you. We choose to live by faith. But the righteous man and woman will live by faith, by faith in the, in the promises of God, by faith in the acts of God, by faith by looking to God, by listening to His Word. Live, live by faith. Help us develop that attitude. No, don't help us, Lord, because that assumes that we are initiating this thing. We are saying we choose we choose to look to you. We choose to fix our eyes upon you. We choose to trust your promises, to believe in them. Even though we may not feel that way, we choose the word over the feelings. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.